This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome to this is our, uh, just so you know, it's our 50th Script to Screen uh, event and episode. We started long ago in 2011 with Legally Blonde, was our first one. Uh, and over the course of the eight years we've done it, it's, we've had 27 students direct it and co-produce it and go on to better things. And we've had over 100 camera interns like this who have operated our cameras. So this really, this whole series is a testament to them. And we want to thank them, Percival Center, for all their great work over the last eight years. Uh, before we begin, uh, please silence your cell phones and remove batteries from your toy rockets. <laughs> uh, but today we're here to celebrate The Quiet Place. It received an Oscar nomination for sound effects editing. It received SAG Award for Emily Blunt, Best Writers Guild original screenplay for our guest today. So please welcome our two guests, uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods. Cool. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, so we're going to go back in time a little. Uh, I've read some interviews and mm-hmm. seen you in some of your communities about how Chaplin inspired you a little. What was it about the Chaplin and the style of filmmaker that maybe inspired you to go down the road for a silent film? I mean, it's simply the ability to engage pure cinema, like to be able to tell your story only through visuals, and you can communicate character, you can communicate intention, you can communicate everything about plot without really saying anything. That was what was really attracting us. And we'd also been studying a lot about how with City Lights, like that was a that was a silent film post silent film. Like he could have made it with sound, right? Like, but it was it was a it was a throwback of sorts. And at the time a lot of people, particularly the studio, were like, What are you doing? Like, why are we doing silent films? Like sound's a new thing. And the movie did really well. It traveled the world because it used kind of the universal language of cinema. And so we just kept coming back to this feeling of, is there a way to do a modern-day silent film, a modern-day film that could play the world and have no barrier to language? And then, of course, combine that with our love of Jaws and Alien and, and, and some of the, you know, the scarier things that we, that we love in film as well. So, as we know, screenwriters, dialogue is a pretty important tool. <laughs> so when you're actually sitting down and writing it, what were the challenges in crafting it, taking away your major tool and primarily nonverbal cues? It was really, how do you make this visual film appear visual on the page? So for us, it very much was about activating um, what we, could, we would call like gimmicky screenwriting. Like we were studying um, uh, scripts from like Alien, the Walter Hill, David, uh, David Geiler um, script, Nightcrawler by Dan Gilroy, like has this incredible visual flow where there's not traditional like location slug lines. It just is more about an atmosphere that flows on the page. And so those were some of the things that we were chasing where we were like, we have to give this blueprint so you're not just reading words on a page, but you're feeling the sound, you're feeling the suspense or the absence of sound, um, and making sure that it just would have a flow where you're not just bogged down by, by tons of description. So. Yeah, one of, our, um, one of our favorite movies of all time is, is Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and it's so cinematic and so visual, and we were just like, how do you, like, how did you, how do you write that? Like, how, did, how did Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke write that? And for the, the, the epic space dock uh, sequence um, where the ship docks to the space station, um, apparently the script just had like five pages of white and then a single sentence that said the ship docks. 
And we were like, that's how you write A Quiet Place. Like, that's like, you, you take big swings like that on the page just to communicate to, you know, inevitably the producers, studio, um, actors, that this is going to be, you know, unlike anything you've seen before. Yeah, we, we talked a little about Jaws, The Thing, mm-hmm. Alien, Creature of Black Lagoon, yeah. a lot of the old classics. They, they generally hid the monster as long as possible, yeah. and the audience had to fill in the visual gaps. When you're, writing, when, you, when you're writing this, how do you decide how much visual do you show and how much you can know that the audience will take care of it for you? We, we love holding it off as much as possible. Like, that's just a philosophy. We, we haven't just activated in this, but like some of the other scripts that we've written or other films that we've directed, where you want to make sure that the audience's imagination is is dredging up something more terrifying than what you could ever show on screen. So very much in the writing of this, um, we, we were suggesting like the movement of the creature behind certain objects and certainly like John bringing it to life. He was trying to be very cognizant of at least for like the first half, you don't want to really show much of it at all. So that was always in the back of our minds, making sure that it wasn't until like closer to the end that you would even see anything. And it was a bit of a balance too, because like unlike Jaws, where like we all know what a shark mm-hmm. looks like, cause mm-hmm. like this, there was a bit of storytelling that was required. We had to be able to see the monster a little bit to understand what it is, like we had to be able to see like the plates open up mm-hmm. and see the ear to know that like, to connect that like, okay, it hears things and that's why it's, so it was a bit of a dance, but you know, anytime, as Scott said, we can use the audience's imagination against them is, is the best. Yeah, so it was, well, you know, we didn't get a lot of the monster's backstory. Um, do, no, how much do you know? And what yeah. was the decision to decide what the audience should know or not? Know? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, we're we're not huge fans of like tons of exposition or like just boring the audience to tears about like this this guy came from Pluto and he's been traveling like seven years to make his way here on a meteorite. So we we very much we, we thought about the basics of, of what it was like biologically, why it would come here, but like those aren't conversations that really, to be frank, like interest Brian and I. So we try to get the basics down and then just forget about it. And very much for us, we felt like we're dropping the audience in with this family, almost like a Twilight Zone episode, where the audience has to figure out what's going on by virtue of just following who these characters are. And we felt like that would be an interesting way to parcel out information in the barest of forms if you see it through, you know, like in the film, newspaper headlines. And you're just getting the basic of what you need to know to appreciate the experience of the journey. And if you think about it, the, the characters don't care. Yeah. The backstory, they're yeah. just trying, like, how do I fight it? Exactly. You know, yeah. survive yeah. it. Yeah. It was... Uh, now, one of the things I know, the movie's running time is 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie is constantly tense because at no point the, you know, the children, the family's always in jeopardy. How did you go about trying to, because usually in a horror film they might have a comedy bit. What were your sure. tension breakers? What were the thoughts about how are you going to give the audience a break mm-hmm. knowing that this movie of all is a little more of a mm-hmm. constant? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, we think about that all the time because my, my favorite movies are, are the movies that surprise, that give you something that you don't expect when you go to see it. So like when you, presumably when you go to see A Quiet Place you expect to be scared, but um, we wanted to have those tension relief moments. Like one of the moments I think about is um, the, the moment in the basement when they're dancing to music, and ha- and letting that be like a, a decompressor to just let everything drop a bit, so that you can then ramp up the tension again. Um, so we had few anchor points mm-hmm. like that, and and there's some I don't know. J- John and Emily did some really beautiful comedic moments too, with her and the son, and, and some of her reactions and communications. Uh, it, it shakes it up a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I also like. 
writing the script is one thing, but then seeing the film is, is obviously another. And I remember the first time we saw it, we were like, oh, this feels a little more like a chamber piece in like the beginning where like Emily's teaching you know, her son and doing this homeschool, and you're just kind of existing with these characters. So you have the opening scene where you have the tension, which sets up every single stake that you need to know in the world, but then that lets you kind of just coast on by for like the next, you know, for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I think it is, where you're just getting to know the characters. And that, for us, was the most important thing about this film, is make sure it's not just scary, but it really is rooted in, in character. Yeah, it does seem like, you know, because we do get a sense, like, they found a way to survive. Mm-hmm. Like, they're actually not in danger in their mm-hmm. whole new system, even though you throw the mm-hmm. Monopoly board. And, mm-hmm. Right, you know, uh, yeah. Um, so, but what was the choice? All right, so you have this nice, actually, grocery store moment. A simple mm-hmm. family going to the grocery store. What was the decision to make that as kind of your entry into the world? Mm. That, that's one of those things, um, all credit to John, because what happened was we needed to set the stakes right off the bat. And in like comparing it to the original draft of the script, you actually start off almost with that Monopoly scene where all of a sudden like the inception point is the family there at home. And what, what John kind of got attracted to with the grocery store thing is setting up the idea that this is how they survive. They go into town. This is how they kind of get their goods. And then you set up like the whole rocket thing. And that becomes really the inciting incident for it. So. Did uh, the studio have any reservations about killing a four-year-old? Not at kid? all. Paramount was great. Like <laughs> they really wanted to kill that kid on page ten. So. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> well, it was a good moment because they actually, and also it sets up. You know, we'll talk a little more about the father-daughter mm-hmm. relationship. They have a sweet moment there mm-hmm. yeah. before the death. Yeah, mm-hmm. like a, a typical mom-dad yeah. moment. Um, John Krasinski and the cinematographer Charlotte Christensen, mm-hmm. amazing work, uh, obviously created a very enticing visual style. What was special that you thought of their visual style that, that, from what you wrote? Mm. They- it, for us, I think it just it kept that idea of making it very grounded, where you didn't want it to feel too glossy. Like, there's certain trends in horror films that you see over the years. Like, there's um, you know, a trend that things are very desaturated or very like, bluish and this just felt like, to us, a slice of Iowa. Like, um, David Lynch's Straight Story, which is one of his films that was shot in our home state of Iowa, kind of feels like that. It's just, it's, it's a movie that takes place on a farm, and you don't have to, like, make it feel too glossy. It feels, like, kind of just realistic. And it's, and it's a, unique, a unique experience being able to watch the movie that you had in your head for so long, because things look different but better, you know? Like, the, the, the scene that sticks out in my mind is, is the bathtub scene, the way... Charlotte like lit that with um, the kind of dark blues, but then like the red lights like spilling in, and it just um, it was a real treat to see how, the amazing work that they did bringing it to life. Now, did you always decide that the uh, I mean the death of a child was mm-hmm. going to haunt and traumatize yeah. them? Was that yeah. always the decision? We need that moment. Yeah, that was one of those things early, like in writing the script. Like we we came up first with the idea, the core high concept idea of um, you know if you make a sound, these creatures are going to kill you. And for us, we were like, that's not enough. Like this has to be about uh, characters. And so we started challenging ourselves to figure out what's the most dynamic version of that. We started thinking about, okay, it's a family on a farm. Um, we had we had pillaged uh, an idea from our real life in an earlier script about having one of these characters, the daughter, being deaf, and that being one of those things that services um, what that character kind of comes to a realization by the end of the story as being hopefully a, a moving thing. And by that point, it was just really drilling down of how these characters can kind of all art. Yeah, it wasn't it. until really when we figured out 
because we were like, yeah, maybe that's interesting. Eh, it's kind of gimmicky. We're not really sure. It wasn't until we were like, okay, they lost somebody in their family. Mm-hmm. And because of that tragedy they suffered, the family's not talking to each other. And even if you took out all the monsters, you took out the aliens, you took out the whole premise of the movie, this family still wouldn't be talking. We're like, okay, now it's working as a metaphor. Now it feels special. And, and once we got those kind of layers in line, we proceeded to write the script. Because until then, we were pretty insecure about it. And every time, for whatever reason, like every time we pitched the idea to producers and, and studio executives, and, and I don't mean like formally pitch, but I just mean like, oh, we're thinking about this idea about a family on a farm, there's monsters. They would just, their eyes would glaze over so quickly. They'd just be like, guys, like, this is a stupid idea for a movie. Because it's like, you can imagine the bad version of it. You know, the bad version of, of the premise uh, could be a really, really cheesy movie. So it's almost like, uh, how long did it take you, would you say, from start the first time you conceived it to? Um, about 10 years, I think. Because like, we, like the Chaplin movies and Buster Keaton and Jacques Tati, we were watching those um, you know, when we were in college. And then we just kept uh, our own documents of what this movie could be. And then by the time we actually got down to writing the script, which at first was just a 15-page version of the script, just to see if what that format would look like. Um, it was probably like five months from starting that to you know, writing the end on, on the final page. So, so we're going to talk a little character, uh, the daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, she blames, her del- blames herself for the death, mm-hmm. like most of the family does. Uh, she does want to prove herself to her father that she can be independent, kind of like the child taking over a parental role. Uh, how did you approach her complex character? Because you gave her a lot of different elements mm-hmm. to play with. Yeah, I mean, we knew at the root of it, we wanted her to kind of feel the weight of that tragedy. And unfairly, like have the weight of that on her shoulder the entire time. And her her character, we really kind of drilled in on having to ping pong back and forth between the father and her. Like, we consider them to be, to a certain degree, like the lead characters because their their issue is really the main crux of the story that you're trying to resolve. By the yeah, end. their arcs complete each other. She needs to be able to forgive herself and she needs to be able to hear from her father that he loves her and and is there for her and and his character he needs to be able to tell her that and so you know kind of watching that crisscross was was always the idea and the 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 idea too for the film was that her um perceived i guess perceived disability would ultimately become her superpower and vice versa with the monster. The monster's perceived superpower, what makes it so strong, is ultimately going to become its weakness. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you, uh, let's talk about the actress. What did, what did it really impressed you or surprised you? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, everything. I mean, first and foremost, like talking about the character of the daughter, like Millicent Simmons um, is such a special person. She's like incredibly, I mean, just as a human being, she's, she's incredibly amazing. But as an actress, we had been fans of her work, uh, for a while. Um, Wonderstruck, uh, that she did with Todd Haynes was amazing. And, and, um, in many ways, like we kind of considered her the fourth writer of A Quiet Place because what, she she's deaf in, in real life and in her experience at you know living that life really informed the character and elevated it in a way that basically none of us could have done on the page yeah it's one of those lessons that um i i feel like we were fortunate enough to learn like when when we were younger is like you let you let the script be the script but then you have to let go and you have to let so many different people inform what it is what the film is, what the character is, what the what the story really is, and Millie being able to bring her own life experience to that role is something you you know we could never put that on the page, and so 
all of the intricacies of her experience doing um, you know sign language that that just changed the film entirely for us and and as far as like John and Emily like that getting that phone call that those two were excited and wanted to take this on not only as um, you know filmmakers and actors but like as a family was incomprehensible to us it was like the strangest phone call ever our agent called us and said guys uh, John read the script, he loves it, he's all in, he handed it to Emily, and Emily loved it, and, we're, and we were like, we didn't know that they were married at the time, so we were like very confused by the logistics, we were like, were they just like hanging out at a park, and like he handed, the, like physically handed the script, like we don't understand, and like guys, like, pull, like get your head out of here, like no, they, they're married, they're a couple, they want to do this as a family, and we're just like, wow, that's so, that's so crazy, and, and seeing the final film, there is a layer, like, you know, there's, there's fear of, like, is that just a gimmick that they're doing this movie together? But for us, I actually ended up feeling like there was a kind of an authenticity that they brought because they're so comfortable with each other and they know each other and they trust each other and, and it created something kind of special. Because we thought if we were going to cast someone from the office, we would go with Dwight, who would be more <laughs> exactly. ready for the apocalypse. Dwight and Angela. <laughs> yeah. Dwight and Angela. But you guys, it was a good choice. Uh, so we'll talk a little more because the, the, the kid I love, because most kids are terrified mm-hmm. of the monsters under the bed, yeah. but this one has real monsters everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you approach this character? Because he was somebody who wanted to be mm-hmm. a kid. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, more than Millicent, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, Regan. Yeah, that was all about kind of um, the journey of him trying to have some sort of confidence in himself to be able to survive throughout this world, that he very much was still a child, whereas, you know, his sister, played, played by Millie, she was very much ready to go out in the world and, and kind of assert herself. Um, so for us, it all was about him building up the courage. And, you, like, for us in the script, it, it activates in, like, small ways where... Um, he has to go out and he has to light the fireworks. And so that becomes a whole journey for him. And then, then by the end, he has, he's cradling the baby. He's trying to take some sort of responsibility for that. So it's all like trying to find the small arcs within the entire like family continuum, really. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, the rocket is traumatic. And when he mm-hmm. has to ask, you have to launch the rocket to save mom mm-hmm. after what it did to his brother. Yeah. That was a nice yeah. little touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, you mentioned the two main characters. I'm going to suggest a third main character. Mm-hmm. Sound, oh, even more. Than, absolutely. Uh, we interviewed the sound effects engineer at uh, Eric at, at Comic Con, and he said this was his favorite movie to work on because he never gets to use sound specifically as a character or mm-hmm. to actually drive the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were the challenges of writing a character like sound or silence as really as a part of to push? Yeah, for us, it's not a challenge. Like, that's the fun. Like, for every movie that we do, um, sound becomes such a huge part of it because people always are like, it's 50% of storytelling. No, it's like 90% of storytelling. Like, if And, and the right. biggest difference for us, like, between, like, a, like a student work or, like, a, I guess what you would consider, like, an amateur production versus a professional production often is sound. It's mm-hmm. as simple as sound. Sound is... So crucial. And, like, our heroes are, like, the people, the wizards who work up at Skywalker Ranch. Like, that's, like, we worship the work that they do, so... And, like, writing A Quiet Place, for us, um, it was kind of like having a beat sheet in and of itself as, as we were writing the script, because we knew... In the final format, you can't just hit people with sound after sound after sound after sound, um, and you couldn't just let the whole film be silent either. So in writing it, it was figuring out, okay, what are these set pieces? How is sound activated in those? 
how do you communicate that on the page? Which for us, we went back to um, what I was calling like the gimmicky screenwriting school of thought, where we would have like big sounds literally be in bigger font, be bold, or as things got quieter and quieter, you'd shrink the font size. So you were getting the feeling of it through the read. Um, and then just making sure that we had a roadmap where there were the loud moments, but then it got quiet and loud. And sometimes you would anticipate, oh, the audience is going to think there's going to be a loud moment here, but you want to withhold that. So we were trying to do as much directing on the page as we could and then just hand it off to you know, people that could make it you know, incredible. And by the way, like when you look at genre movies, when you look at specifically in horror, sound is like the best weapon you have in your toolbox. Mm-hmm. And like all of our heroes, like Hitchcock is a master of sound. Um, even like a, a you know like a more contemporary filmmaker like M Night Shyamalan uses sound beautifully in his films to to scare the audience and to move them. So sound is everything, and those guys did crushed it on this. Yeah, movie. and I thought the uh, it was interesting because he said this. Like, uh, he said in the interview, it was uh, the waterfall mm-hmm. was so much louder because we had so much <laughs> silence, but it was actually yeah. a normal waterfall. <laughs> yeah. uh, was always a waterfall part of the, the scene, or did you always need that kind of? That was um yeah that was a contribution John made the the original sequence with um with Noah and the father going out and venturing out and exploring uh, the son's fears was um, slightly more suspenseful and I won't spoil it because you never know if that'll uh, wind up in a in a future installment but um but John um, had the idea of like doing this waterfall where they could kind of like finally express like yeah. this kind of pent up emotion which is really beautiful our instinct initially was. Um, and early, the earliest drafts, and then, of course, this evolved as we got into more drafts, but the very first concept of, of the movie was we won't hear a line of dialogue until the very final um, moment where the father finally says, I love you, and screams. Like, that was, that was kind of the initial idea. Um, but there's something nice about um, being able to sprinkle that in because you're kind of you're craving it. I, I, one, of our, um, one of the coolest scenes that we saw when we first saw the movie that we really enjoyed was uh, when Emily is uh, teaching Noah, um, home teaching him, and she's signing, but she's just barely whispering her lines of dialogue, mm-hmm. and it's so it's a, such a unusual kind of like you're, you're just craving those words so much because everything's been so so silent. So it's it's fun. And talking a little about setup and payoff with the old man, mm-hmm. obviously yeah. sets out John Krasinski's death. What was the uh, how did you view that character? Was it just was there any backstory to him, or did you just stumble upon that idea? Yeah, it's it's really just again painting the world without having to go too much in depth of all these different characters. And there's the suggestion of it when when John's character is up on the silo and you see all these fires being lit that there are other people surviving there. But it's not you know the case where you can just walk over to your neighbor and, and borrow a cup of sugar without dying. So <laughs> um, so the the idea that there were other people in this world, but, you know, 400-some days in, not everybody's willing to, to keep going, and they don't see the purpose of living. And for us, coming back to, like, the building out the characters, we were like, that's this family superpower, is that they actually have had a tragedy, but that tragedy actually gave them the willpower to forge ahead by virtue of... Um, having having the baby born into this world and accepting that as something that they will forge ahead with given all of the potential issues that, that come with that. So. Yeah, it's interesting. That is a nice little dynamic yeah. showing that this person did quit and they will never quit that mm-hmm. family. All right, so we're going to talk one more scene set up, which I think you really nailed. 
Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> how early in the running process did you guys think we're going to plant this nail, create anxiety in the audience today in our theater for a half hour? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it was, uh, I mean, that was fun to write. I mean, like, so, so as writers, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you outline, sometimes we like to outline to a certain extent the major mo- motions of the story. But the nail was fun because we just wrote that scene where you, it appears on the step and we had no idea where we were going to pay it off. We were just like, at some point in the story, we trust that this nail will come back into play. We're not sure where. And then as we were writing and kind of escalating everything and, and kind of putting the characters and torturing them as much as possible, when we got to the worst, most horrible point in the story for their, for their, for their characters, we're like, here's where she steps on the nail. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's been a fun one to watch. That's a, yeah, that's a fun space for us is in screenwriting is the idea that you plant so much on the page, not always knowing where it's going, and in some ways that activates something in your brain in the background that starts filling in the gaps of the world in a much larger way than it might necessarily if you've pre-planned ahead everything and you're just kind of following, you know, architectural blueprints. So we, we always love to be in that, that space where you don't know exactly where you're That's going. what I really appreciate about this movie because it was never about a cheap scare. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and something like that. Uh, let's talk a little about Emily Blunt. What, did, what, did, what kind of surprised you or like, wow, this is, you know... Yeah, I mean, well, I, everything wows us about Emily Blunt. <laughs> like the fact that um, we were in like the first meeting with some of the producers and they were just, we were having that... Um, fun casting conversation where it's more wish fulfillment where it's like who would you want to be in this movie and we're like yeah Emily Blunt would be cool but she's never going to do it and the fact that um, she came on board not just as an actress but as a mother like somebody that connected to the script because literally she had had her second child she and John had had their second child three weeks before they had read this script that they can tap into something very primal and so when you're seeing her give birth on screen like yeah she just did that a few months prior to filming this so it's very very real Um, so that's one of those things I don't think you can ask for much more from a performer where they can give part of their true self to the actual role and what was the decision to go with um her really, her first speaking line was talking mm-hmm. about her finally dealing with the trauma mm-hmm. verbally. What was it? That was the first time she would actually speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was just um, you know, it was just that's just the the kind of moment of bubbling up and and letting it go. And again, that was John was instrumental in all those kind of key like where does where are we going to express um, how we're feeling and where are we going to say things versus what we've been bottling up and what the movie's been bottling up. And it's it's a really um, kind of Nice cathartic beat. All right, so we now get to talk about my favorite scariest scene, mm. the silo scene. Yeah. Uh, how did that translate from the screen with the way you guys originally envisioned it? I, that's one of those that like translates pretty close for us because um, it, it was born out of the fact that we grew up in Iowa and um, we would always travel back through these like country roads because we grew up more in like the city version area of Iowa, and then um, there were these country roads that you would always see these like silos and grain bins peeking up and every now and then you'd see an article like in the newspaper that some so-and-so drowned in a grain bin and you're like wait drowned like how does that happen there's no water there and um that stuck in our mind as being like a terrifying way to to go and so when we were thinking about 
the farm and all the different types of things that you would encounter on the farm that would be dangerous. That was one of the things on the tip of our tongue that we were like, we have to activate. Um, but having children like crawl in there, seeing it on screen was, was terrifying for us, even though like we knew what was happening on the page, like to see the execution of it, um, you know, fulfilled, I think, exactly what we had hoped for it. Now, obviously, a lot of this movie is about parents, you know, realistically, not the fear of parents be able to protect their children, especially in today's mm-hmm. mind. How much did that factor into when you were writing this the concept of the fear of what if we could not save our children even mm-hmm. in a regular world like today? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, everything. I mean, you know, it's interesting. As writers, we try to, we think about the metaphor of the story and, and we talk, we have those conversations. So, like, we talked a lot about um, broken communication in a family. We talked a lot about the, the fear of not being able to protect your family or being able to protect your kids. And, I know that that was certainly on John's mind, um, and and we talk about how, you know, what our personal relationship is to those concepts. Um, but then beyond that, like broadly speaking, we don't necessarily draw the line to like what's going on today, and like how does that, mean, you know, like the the hope is that we write something that's personal and and true to our experience and. Hopefully it resonates on that level of like what people are experiencing today. But yeah, I think like for for me personally, it was very much um, a pocket in, in my life where my wife and I were talking a lot about having kids and what does that, how does that change your life entirely and what it does and what we assumed and what it now has done now that I have a daughter is it opens you up to a whole new world of vulnerability where you are now responsible to keep this this little ball of flesh alive and god forbid if anything happens to it and that is um that is a terrifying conceit that is based in everybody's reality and i think to be able to marry that to something as as weird and foreign as like aliens coming to earth and obliterating us like that creates something that's very personal within what otherwise would just be this horror movie so what's the longest you were able to get your daughter to play the quiet king (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, she sleeps like 13 hours a night, so yeah, 13 hours now, but it was touch and go for the first five months. Yeah. Uh, you talked a little about the resolution with, um, you know, John, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the father and daughter. What was your reaction when you saw him sign, I love you, mm. as the... Yeah. Amazing, and, and what was so special is that, um, and Scott, maybe you recall this a little better than mm-hmm. I do, but uh, Millie had kind of a, a revision on that. Yeah, line, they were at, like, before they shot the film, um, John and Emily and Millie and Noah all had this back backyard barbecue where they were filming the movie, and Millie and Noah's parents came, and um, Millie was saying something to to her mom, saying, I love you, I will always love you. And John was witnessing that from across the lawn. He's like, we have to incorporate that into the movie. Because originally it was like, it was spoken dialogue, and then it was just the sign for I love you, but the I will always love you became much more of kind of that, that final cathartic beat. And I was amazed by Emily's performance just watching on the video screen, yeah. the death, and yeah, yeah it, it must have been dramatic. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, so what was? So we we'll go to the final battle. Uh, <laughs> I was. I just love the fact that the daughter actually became the secret weapon. Mm. Yeah. total strength. Yeah. Uh, what was kind of the, the deliberations, or how were you going to resolve the story and the ending? That was that to us came super early in the process. I mean, I, I touched upon it briefly earlier, but we had originally written like a 15-page, what we called like a proof of concept, just to see if this would work. And that walked through all the major beats of the story. And that's where we kind of unlocked everything that we've been talking about, where you set up the world, you set up the characters, you set up the daughter, you set up the pregnancy, 
you set up kind of the final sacrifice, and then you set up the final way of defeating it. And for us, we're always trying to figure out how do you make the script the tightest possible and there's no fat on it whatsoever. And so it always was about you set up this this daughter who has this this hearing issue. It's got to end with that because that's so incorporated into this world where sound is key. So it was all about trying to figure out then the benchmarks of how do you introduce that. You know, there's the moment where she has the, the hearing aid that kind of misfires um, in the cornfield and we see the creature behind it. And just making sure that we're activating these, these fence posts along the way so hopefully it doesn't come out of nowhere by the end. I did enjoy the way, like, she had her own sound, too. Like, they, they dropped the sound when they focused on her. Right, they, yeah. Yeah, they, they dropped down mm-hmm. the sound. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about the score. I mean, obviously, yeah. the mm-hmm. score. What was, your, what was your reaction to the score? Yeah. Loved it. <laughs> Loved it. I mean, we, we saw, so we saw, like, a rough cut um, near, near the end of the process at one point that had kind of a lot of temp score, um, a lot of... Um, you know, music from other movies uh, in, in service of, of kind of a temporary edit of the film. And seeing the film at South by Southwest, which was like literally like a week later, like they were like hustling, like this movie came together so fast right on the finish line. Um, having all of Marco's music in there, it was, um, it really elevated the whole film. It, it, it's, it's funny, you don't, sometimes you think of score as like, oh, it makes you feel emotional or oh it makes this scene that's really slow faster but it also tells the story like it is a piece of storytelling it's a storytelling tool so like things that didn't quite make sense from a storytelling perspective like how the the alien uh gets affected by millie or how um, somebody feels about a certain situation or what a character's motivation is the score can actually help come in and fill that out and help Mm -hmm. tell the story a lot of people have said like oh, do you guys ever try a cut with no music at all so the whole movie's silent? And I actually think from a, from a plotting standpoint, I actually don't think the movie would make as much sense. I think it, the movie would be more abstract in a weird way because the music is, is doing so much um, uh, storytelling help. Mm-hmm. And in the editing, was there a longer cut of this or did they say we just have to keep it shorter because the audience will... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, script, the script itself, like, um, by the final shooting script, it was still pretty short. It was, like, in the 80-page range, and um, so we knew the running time would be short. There really was no time to experiment with longer, shorter cuts. Uh, I think there was an edit of the movie where, like, the waterfall scene came out, and they yeah, pulled that out, true. but then they put yeah. it back in. It was just, like, pulling stuff out and then putting it back in, because it's just, like, there was really no fact. But the truth is, like, the post-production process for this, they had um, maybe, like, three months to edit this movie where typically you know you would have at least like six months and it was just by virtue of there was a release date and then Paramount and John decided to open the film up a month earlier at South by Southwest Mm -hmm. so it truncated the post schedule even shorter so it's a miracle that they were able to get everything on screen. So I I, I interview a lot of filmmakers they always say they love watching the audience's reaction (laughs) I think in this movie especially what scene do you both like to watch the audience watch? I mean, the nail scene, obviously. <laughs> I like everyone like simultaneously imagining what it'd be like. To and I and I love watching the Monopoly scene as a fun mm-hmm. one to watch the audience for sure. Yeah, because it's such a sweet little tender moment that turns mm-hmm. dark pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, well, we're gonna let the audience ask a couple of questions. Yeah, so, so how much did the naming of the movie affect the screenwriting process in terms of the soundtrack? Because with something named The Quiet Place, you'd expect there to be a lot of like um, emphasis on sound 
from the beginning. So did you have the name set in place at the beginning when you made that initial setup of like, um, you know, from detailing, what, talking about the pregnancy to the nail, to the, to the sacrifice, to, to everything like that? Um, how much, how much did the name affect it? Yeah, mm -hmm. well, we, um, I mean, we, we came up with the title very, very early. Like it was called A Quiet Place even back when it was a 15 page proof of concept. And we wanted it to sound kind of pastoral. Like we wanted it to sound like almost like a Terrence Malick film. Like it almost like it was gonna be like something other than a horror film. Like we wanted to kind of, the, the title for us was less emphasizing um, the, the sound the sound journey, but more um, more like trying to imbue a quality of um, poetry and family and family on a farm. And uh, you know, the, a friend of ours compared to the, he said the movies like uh, uh, if John Steinbeck did Predator, and we're like, yeah, that's kind of what we were going for. <laughs> so that's kind of where our heads were when we came up with the title. Thank you guys for putting um, resources, effort, a lot of you know, energy together to uh, realize uh, such an incredible movie. Um, I would like to ask you a couple of questions about you know, the pre-production. Mm -hmm. uh, could you tell us a bit about the pre-production? Uh, how did you, how were you able to, you know, uh, raise money to get that movie? From uh, my understanding, I saw about 17 to 21 million, but I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. it was, it was the, my, that my first questions. But yeah. the second question that I have for you is, um, about the most difficult, what was for you the most difficult scene? I do have an idea. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I would like to hear it from you. Yeah. You know? And my third question will be... <laughs> One question. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, to, uh, the, the budget, um, this, this movie was produced by, by Paramount Pictures, but what's, what's we found odd about it is that Usually you see a lot of movies being produced right now, like one million, two million, maybe five million, and then you have you know your Avengers movies. And for us in writing the movie, um, how we approached it from a budget standpoint was if nobody ever wanted to touch this movie, no studios wanted to touch it, we knew there was a version of this that could be made for $50,000. And we knew we'd be able, through Kickstarter or GoFundMe or through private ways, we could raise $50,000, we could raise $100,000 and make this. And we knew no matter what, even if it didn't hit all the eyeballs in the world that we hoped it would, hopefully it would be unique and different enough to exist and, and have its own life on that version. Um, it just so happened that through, um, through our producers at Platinum Dunes that the script landed at Paramount and they greenlit it with John and Emily and it happened to be 17, 17 to 22 million dollars I think was a final, final number but um, all I'm getting at is that the key is I think for also a lot of writers anyone writing in the audience um, should be like focus on something that could scale and the difference is what actor do you get in it? But as long and as there's a provocative idea behind it, I think you can, you can make something cheap. That's, it, that's cool. And it was scalable even when it was at Paramount. Like, even when it was a studio movie, it was never like, now we need John, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt to be in this movie. It was like, they were willing, the studio was willing to cast, um, you know, like, whatever you would call it, like, lesser names, smaller actors, um, because the concept was, was big, and they felt like, um, you know, we just got lucky with those guys. Yeah. 
Um, and that inflated the budget a little bit, but they still made it for a pretty responsible number. And to follow up the second question, what, what was most hardest? Yeah, I think from like a writing perspective, like the most difficult thing was trying to figure out um, how do you activate all the character work throughout the story. Like we knew that there was a core issue that, that would affect this and permeate this family that would tear them apart. But it was, it was one of those things that you have no dialogue to really say anything whatsoever. So how do you activate that in a way on the page that actually becomes visual when the actors are acting in it? So your movie strikes me as very similar to Dunkirk in that there's very little dialogue and it's about, as you said, the language of cinema. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, both your scripts are about 80-something pages also. Mm -hmm. There's like no fat. So I guess my question is, what was the most surprising thing that was born from the script that you didn't expect because of that that, I guess, emptiness that you provided, mm-hmm. the freedom? Yeah. Um, wow, that's a great question. I, I, I have a thought. Do you have a... Yeah, go for it. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is actually answering <laughs> yeah. your question, but you did definitely remind me of when we saw Dunkirk for the first time. We were like, oh, damn. Like, they did it first. Because, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, one of the initial inspirations was um, seeing uh, There Will Be Blood in, in PTA, like, the, the first, like you know, whatever it is, 12, 10, 10, 12 minutes of, like, you know, just pure cinema and and wanting to do that for a whole movie, and certainly Dunkirk was a great example of that. Um, One of the more surprising things for me is I think, like, I think because... you're, because the rules are so clear that if you make a sound, you die, or if you make a sound, you're in trouble, um, we felt surprised and lucky that we were able to marinate with the characters for so long in the first 30 to 40 minutes because there's a latent suspense that um, makes it entertaining, and so you're able to really spend time with them. Again, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's what occurred to me. Yeah, well. and I think I'm just... Um, like I. After going through the process, I just have an appetite personally, not just to write more things that don't rely so much on dialogue, but to see more things that don't rely on dialogue. Because cinema is its a visual medium, and it combines so many amazing things, whether it's music or production design, to tell a story that doesn't always need um, dialogue. At the same time, I love Aaron Sorkin, so I, I and, don't And by the way, projects. we made this movie with Michael Bay. <laughs> like, he was yeah. one of our producers, which we thought was hilarious. Like, <laughs> our agents were like, all right, we want to take the script to Platinum Dunes. And we're like, you guys want to make the quietest movie of all time with the loudest filmmaker of all time. That is so bizarre. <laughs> um, but he was pretty cool to work with and uh, totally, totally supported the film. So. All right, well, we always end our show with the last question mm-hmm. uh, and put you on the spot because I know you've okay. mentioned a lot of things. Uh, what We have a lot of you know, aspiring screenwriters here. What mm-hmm. movie or script growing up would you say was inspiration to you and perhaps something our screenwriting students should study? Hmm. Yeah, put us on the spot here. Um, Mine was Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I feel like that's, that's like the movie that I rented all the time from Rock Island Public Library um, to study because it is such a great one um, to combine character and, and concept. Um, I, would, I would have to say probably Magnolia, to be honest, like Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, um, because that was the movie that hit me like right when I was thinking about doing film as a career. I was only like 13 or 14 at the time, but um, it was a movie where it took these wild swings and wild chances, and I had never at that point seen anything quite like that. And I remember going to the script, and even though it's like a 180-page script, like it's very economical at the same time. Like It, it very much pairs down its characters to just 
basic actions that communicate every single piece of emotional context that you need. So that was probably the movie that, that really turned me on to, to cinema. Uh, that was an excellent answer, and now I am slightly depressed that <laughs> whatever I'm going to dig up, we'll just go back to the old resource of Hitchcock, um, because I feel like, so we, we discovered Hitchcock probably when we were making films in, I don't know, middle school or something, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I, if I had to pick one film, it might be Vertigo, it might be, it might be Dial M for Murder, it might, now I've already picked two films. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, th- what we love about Hitchcock is that um, you can see... You can see the storytelling with his camera moves and his um, and production design and the, the way he the way he expresses cinema as a filmmaker is very apparent, but also very accessible. That the conceptually, most of his movies are extremely entertaining. They're popcorn movies, but there's a lot of substance there um, beneath the surface to to unpack. And also, as young filmmakers, um, it's a it's a very um, kind of relatable feeling watching a Hitchcock film because he the, the tools they had back then are the tools as young filmmakers we had available to us growing up, and so it's 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 easy to see a correlation between what they were able to achieve versus um, what we could achieve. Well, I mean, uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight and breaking down a quiet place with the audience. Thank you. For having thank you. Us. And please come back with your next film. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much (laughs) for coming out and seeing this in a theater. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.